I was a student at Moody Bible Institute in 1977, and I was the security guard. Sounds really ominous. I didn't have like a sidearm or anything. I was, I was armed with a button, actually. I sat in a girl's dorm, um, and, uh, which is kind of cool in itself, and uh, in, in the night there at the front desk, and I would buzz the girls in, and they came in, you know, toward curfew, and I would hit the button. I had a little monitor, and you'd see them show up there, and if they looked like a legitimate Moody student, they're pretty easy to spot. You'd hit the little button, and the door would be unlocked, and the girls would come in. And one night, something really crazy happened. I, I just saw this, um, this scuffle on the monitor. There was a girl, and she was just... she. If you get a little antsy and you grab the door and you jerk it and I hit the button, it doesn't unlock. You know what I'm talking about? And so I'm hitting the button trying to let this girl in and she's screaming like somebody's attacking her and help me in. I'm like, I'm hitting the button and, and I see off the monitor, I see a man off the monitor. So I, I hurried out there and there was the man out there, a drunken man. And, he, and when he, when he saw me, he said, I wasn't trying to hurt her. I was just trying to get into a warm place and don't, you know, I'm a Christian and, and I, 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 uh, you know, and he, and I said, okay, you know, um, I'm not here to hurt you either. I just want to protect her. She, you scared her. And oh, I didn't mean to scare her. He goes, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. And he was definitely drunk and you could smell the alcohol in his breath. And, and, uh, I kind of looked at him. He, he was, even though he was drunk, I have a feeling that, he knew that I kind of doubted his profession of faith. And he started naming the Bible college that he had attended, naming the pastors, the preachers, the key leaders that were there. This man had definitely been there. and This man had definitely known about the things of the Lord. And, and I wondered as I walked back in, a very young man that night, and that sad encounter with that man on the street of Chicago, who obviously had known the gospel and had been around the things of the Lord, how could a man drift so far from God? How could it happen that a man would, would drift so far away from God? Of those that were the recipients of this writing, First and Second Kings, one book would have been in a similar situation, far from God, far from home, in exile in Babylon, the remnants of Judah in exile in Babylon, and asking them themselves the question, how, O oh God, could I have drifted so far from you? And the book was written, First and Second Kings, were unquestionably written with that purpose in mind that those questions would be answered. Not only the question, how, God, did I drift so far from you, but how can I make my way back? I hope your heart is hungry tonight because we have a bit of Bible food for you tonight as we go into this wonderful book, the, the book that we call Second Kings. And uh, imagine then, if you will, that you are a person who is far from God and you wonder how you got there and you wonder how to make your way back. In chapters 1 through 17, there are 25 chapters in 2 Kings, and 710 verses. I hope you had a chance to read them. In chapters 1 through 17, you have the continuing story that starts in 1 Kings of the decline of both Israel and Judah, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. It's a period of 131 years, chapters 1 through 17. For the first 17 chapters, it toggles back and forth between the northern and the southern kingdom. So it makes kind of kind of like uh, the, the, the reading doesn't flow because it jerks back and forth between the northern and the, and the southern kingdoms, and you have to kind of figure that out as you go. It's kind of like a mat. You, it's almost, you could almost punctuate these places like, meanwhile, back in Judah. Meanwhile, back in Israel. Meanwhile, back in Judah. Like that, of course, you know, of the divided kingdom there. 
in chapters 18 through 25, so that's chapters 1 through 17, this continuing record of decline of both the northern and the southern kingdoms. And chapters 18 through 25, you have the record of the continuing decline of Judah, a period of 155 years. Key verses might be these, referring to Israel, 2 Kings 17, 22 and 23, read like this, 2 Kings 17, 22 and 23, the children of Israel walked in all the sins of Jeroboam, which he did, and they did not depart them until the Lord removed Israel out of its sight, out of his sight. Until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight. As he had said by all his servants and prophets, so Israel was carried away from their own land to Assyria as it is to this day. And another key would be in reference to Judah, the southern kingdom, second Kings twenty three twenty seven, the there, there, was an, uh, there was an exile to Babylon of Judah. You're going to see, of course, at the end of this. And it happened kind of in stages, as the deportations in stages. And, and here's the kind of the summary verse in 2 Kings 23, 27. The Lord said, I will also remove Judah from my sight. So he uses the same phrase. I'll remove Israel from my sight. I'll remove Judah from my sight. You don't want this to happen to you. As I've removed Israel, and I will cast off this city, Jerusalem, which I have chosen, and the house which I said, my name shall be there. This is a sad epitaph over Jerusalem and, and over, uh, over Judah. The key chapter, I suppose, would be chapter 25, although there are many rich stories in, 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 this, in this book. The last chapter of the book, the final deportation of Judah to Babylon and a small ray of hope. In the last few verses, there's a little turn at the end and a little ray of hope. Lesson that's really, the lesson of this book can really be stated in Proverbs 14, in verse 34, where it says, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. It is a parallel story of two kingdoms in decline. There are periodic revivals. There are God's men that speak in the northern and southern kingdoms, but it's a, overall, it's a decline. There are good kings, a few, and mostly bad kings, but overall, you have here a picture of decline, and I believe that God put it in His book so that because our hearts are, tend to decline, you have here an example of something that would arrest our attention and, call, and show us our, how to make our way back to God when we stray. Included in the story is the extraordinary story of the ministry of the prophet Elisha. And there's a section in there that would make great preaching. And there's many fascinating stories there. And within the story are notable stories of kings of Judah, some of whom, the good kings of Judah, three in particular, uh, Jehoash, also called Joash, Hezekiah, and Josiah. Great, interesting reading and the read of their lives. It's just inspiring reading to read that. Hope you've done that. If you haven't, maybe this week you can, you can kind of catch up. 2 Kings is the conclusion of the tragic tale that's begun in 1 Kings of the decline and captivity of Israel and Judah. And the book includes Israel's captivity in Assyria and it ends with Judah's captivity in Babylon, if I haven't already made that clear. It's helpful to remember that Israel, the northern kingdom, had no good kings ever, while Judah, the southern kingdom, had eight. None of Israel's 19 kings were godly, none of them. And all but one of the nine dynasties in Israel were created by murdering the previous king. So they had a turnover of dynasties, different families reigning. But yet, in Judah, there was only one dynasty. Eight of his 20 rulers are righteous, as I said. The United Kingdom lasts 112 years. The Northern Kingdom goes 209 years. Southern Kingdom, an additional 136 years for a total time of about 450, 457 years. See, kind of like I always read these things, and I always kind of imagine American history laid over the top of the history of God's people 
when we really kind of think we're proud and we're only a few hundred years old, a couple of hundred years old, and we realize that there are, that, you know, as nations and people groups de- rise and as they decline, we, just because we're 200 years old, we shouldn't get proud and believe there's no possibility of decline as a nation. I'm sure you agree with me. After many warnings and privileges and prophets, God sends judgments because of immorality, idolatry, and disunity. And because of eight of the twenty kings of Israel of Judah are good, they do last longer. And judgment does come, but not before He gives them many, many warnings. He's faithful to do that. Even in times of disobedience and in decline, God sends faithful prophets. He always does that. You can watch for that. Even though there are many, many leaders who aren't faithful to the Lord, there are faithful prophets. God sends to the northern kingdom Elijah, Elisha, Amos, and Hosea. And to the southern kingdom, God sends the prophets of Obadiah and Joel and Isaiah and Micah and Naaman and Zephaniah and Jeremiah and Habakkuk. They have their prophets. They have, they have their voices from God. Let's cut this up into bite, six bite-sized chunks so that you can enjoy it tonight. Okay? Here we go. Number one. Uh, the first chunk, if you will, chapters 1 through 3, and this is just the best way I know to give you a survey of this because it is a lot of desperate, dis- desperate uh, stuff here and there. Um, six um, chunks, if you will. Chapters 1 through 3, the predominant feature is Elisha as God's mouthpiece. Chapters 1 through 3, good reading. It kind of starts out uh, with, with, a, with a chilling story uh, it, when, when we are going to the prophets of Baal for counsel. Is there not a God in Israel? Is the question. Is there not a God in Israel? Why do you need to go somewhere else for advice? Why do you need to go somewhere else for counsel? Why do you need to go somewhere else for help? Is there not a God in Israel? Elisha is God's mouthpiece in, in, in these uh, chapters. Um, Elisha is a great miracle worker of God, and he performs no fewer than eight miracles. Let me, let me give them to you here. Um, uh, by the way, in chapter 10, before I get to that, in chapter 10 and verse 32, there's a, there's a telling little phrase. It can be translated like this. In those days, the Lord began to cut Israel short. Those, in, the downward spiral begun in first kings now accelerates with one bad king after another in Israel. As one bad king after another accedes to the throne, standing in the path of this downward trend are prophets who speak for God. And Elisha takes up the mantle and the ministry of Elijah, and he speaks for God. That's the first uh, three chapters. And then Elisha is God's miracle worker in chapters 4 through 8. And you see this in a series of miracles. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, he provides an oil well for a destitute widow. In chapter 4, verses 8 through uh, 37, he gives life to a dead boy by the power of God. Chapter 4, verses 38 through 41, he makes a poison stew harmless. In chapter 4, verses 42 through 44, he multiplies bread, interestingly, for a hungry crowd. In chapter 5, verses 1 through 27, he cures leprous, a leprous army captain. In chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, he makes an axe head defy the law of gravity and actually swim. In chapter 6, you also have three more miracles. The reading of the mind of an enemy king and the opening of the eyes of a servant to see angels of God. Remember that part? Chariots of fire. That's kind of a cool part. Don't you like it? And also in chapter 6, the closing of the eyes of his enemy to the same spectacle. Now, I like to say to people that say they're miracle workers in our day and they're kind of full of themselves. And like, I like to say, well, you know, if you've got game, bring it. Let's see it. Because I would like to see this kind of thing in our time. And, and I think there's an unusual uh, outpouring of miracles as God here is confirming His leadership. And it's going to happen in the New Testament too, but that's another story. In each case, God's power at work. An individual shows His readiness to do the same thing to a nation. 
He's like, I have a, a, a prophet here. And look what I would do if a person would obey me and if a person would follow me and love me and live for me. Listen to what I would do. And he gives these examples, and yet it's still in, a, in an overall climate of great decline. So then you have the third chunk, if you will, Jehu and Joash, and you have a couple of different um, spellings or renderings of the, of the name, not to be confused. Jehu, newly anointed king of Israel, carries out instructions to, according to chapter 9 and verse 7, smite the house of Ahab, thy master, and smite they do. Smite he does. Uh, there, uh, concluding verse 7, that I, God, may avenge the blood of my servants and the prophets. Get this, and this is a quick overview. In quick succession here, Jehu dispatches, which is a nice thing for killing Jehoram, the king of Israel, Ahaziah, the king of Judah, Jezebel, wicked wife of Ahab, don't clap, entire family of Ahab, and finally the false prophets, uh, priests of Baal. And if you don't have the proper repugnance for these groups, you just haven't read the text carefully, because if you do, you're like, that's why I said what I said about Jeze- uh, Jezebel, don't mean to be mean. But when she finally you know, dies, it's like, thank you, thank you. There you also have um, Ahaziah, king of Judah, Jezebel, he dispatches, entire family of Ahab, false prophets, priests of Baal. Meanwhile, southern kingdom of Judah, intrigue and bloodshed also prevail. After Ahaziah's death, mother Adelai usurps the throne, seeks to secure her position by killing all the royal offspring, and the infant Joash survives. And in time, he becomes one of the great reforming kings of Judah. You just see this all the time. You have all this dark sad decline. Then you have these little glimmers of hope and a prophet that speaks and a son that's born. So it is even today. And, you know, I sometimes get overwhelmed with the, with the dark stuff, you know. And even this morning, and it grieved me to have to say some of the things that I said. And yet there are those, the remnant. You know, I was sitting here, I was preaching and thinking about young people as I often do. And I was watching some of our college students. I know that we got kids on their way on the road tonight going back to college that, that we want to pray for their safety and we appreciate their testimony. We got kids that go back and forth that live at home and they go to they commute to school and work around here. We appreciate their testimony and we pray for their safety and our hearts are with them uh, even now. We're grateful uh, for them and they they uh, they encourage us as all of you. If you're here tonight, you're a young person. I'm glad you're here tonight. I love you. I hope um, that I never speak in such a way to you that you don't think I care about you and uh, that you think that I'm kind of going after you. I just don't ever want you to sit and listen to me preach and think, oh yeah, I don't know what he said. It was about God, I know, and then just go home. I'd rather that I kind of grab you by the throat. And I'm always conscious of our young people that are here, and I love you very much. And I know the Lord does too. I know your mom's and your dad's hearts just beat for you to live for the Lord. Most of you do. And if your mom and your dad don't and you're here, and we have just a real special appreciation for you too, that God would have reached down and they would have put his hand on your life and would draw you to himself. And if you stay and walk with the Lord and let God do in his life what he wants to do in your life, you, you may just fill a pew with a beautiful family someday. And um, what an honor to the Lord that that would be. What a beautiful thing that would be. And a fourth chunk here, Assyria destroys Israel. Assyria comes in from the north and the west and comes in to the north and the east and comes in and, and destroys. And Assyria also attacks Judah, uh, not as successfully, although they do a great deal of damage and there are deportations, but there's the full and final uh, destruction of Israel in chapters 13 through 17. And we'll catch up right there. Time's running out now for the nation of Israel. Though God's through, uh, patient and His wayward people, uh, His patience for His wayward people is enormous, yet His hand of judgment is poised and it can't be stayed any longer. 
So following the death of Elisha, the nation's downward spiral accelerates. And in spite of the able rule of Jeroboam II, who revives the nation every way but spiritually, kings who secede him lead the people ever deeper into idolatry and into immorality. And not a single one of the last nine monarchs looks to God for direction in earthly affairs. None of them care. They're evil, and the Bible continually says this, evil in the sight of the Lord, good, righteous, in the sight of the Lord. And at last, the nation of Assyria administers the knockout punch by, by capturing and dispersing God's disobedient people. And this brings the northern kingdom to an end. Now, here's the fifth chunk. Are you guys with me on this? Or is this like, is this, yeah. So work with me on it a little bit because when you kind of get these in your heart, it's the Word of God. And so you kind of get them in your heart, I think. It, it, the more you go over these things, you won't get it all. You certainly can't get all of this material just because I said it. But, you know, as you sit in Sunday school faithfully and as you study your own Bible and as you read and the pieces just keep coming together. So stay with it, okay? And this other section, Hezekiah, a fascinating character to study. King Hezekiah reforms Judah, or the southern kingdom, chapters 18 to 21. The epitaph of the tomb of Hezekiah might well have read, Hezekiah is is Judah's best king. Taking the throne at the young age of 25 and there will be younger kings. Uh, he soon establishes himself as a reformer par excellence by destroying all traces of heathen worship among the people, and including the bronze serpent that Moses made and the people had come to worship, as you recall, and had cherished for centuries. Choosing to put his trust in God rather than armies and in horses, Hezekiah often finds himself on his knees. In response to the king's prayers, God strikes 185,000 Assyrians dead and extends King Hezekiah's life an additional 15 years. Very interesting story there. But the king's godly influence and reforms scarcely outlive him because his son's name is Manasseh. And Manasseh is bad news. Introduces abominable practices once again, returning the nation to pagan ways, a downward spiritual slide, and all of that is an understatement. Reading about Manasseh is, 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 is not PG rated. And in the sixth section, or the sixth chunk and final chunk, as I've kind of given the overview of the second king's, you have Babylon ultimately conquering Judah. Chapters 22-25. Hezekiah, perhaps the best king in Judah's history, again, is succeeded by Manasseh, quite possibly the worst. Manasseh's 55-year reign of terror sends the nation to spiritual stupor from which it will never fully recover. Along comes into this Josiah. If you're a young person, can I say something to you again? If you want to read something awesome in the Bible... And you want to be inspired. You're know, going off and you, you, you're among people that don't love the Lord. And you think, can I really love the Lord? And can I really serve the Lord? And can I really know the Lord even though I'm a young person or a kid? Read about Josiah. What a beautiful story in the Bible. God raised up here Josiah-type guys and girls and men and women. That beautiful story. Even godly King Josiah, though, is powerless to reverse the wicked trends in the nation, even though his reign is beautiful. His crusade for righteousness postpones the inevitable for a few decades, and the kings that follow him take it on down after that. There's no escaping the long-delayed consequences of judgment. It sweeps down the nation in the form of Nebuchadnezzar and the, and the armies of Babylon. And Judah, who had refused to learn from the sad example of her sister Israel, now experiences the same calamities of death and destruction and deportation into a new home, exile in Babylon. There you have it. It's the best I knew how to do it. I want to make some applications here tonight on this that I just want you to keep in your mind. Four applications. Let's remember back. We're talking about a nation that must be looking at itself and saying, what happened to me? How did I stray so far from God? And how can I make my way back? Some applications, four of them. First, 
God has abundantly blessed us as He has them. God gave them prophets and He gave them the Word and He gave them the law and covenants and He blessed His people. And God has blessed you and I. He's blessed this church just to walk in here on a Sunday night and to look at all of you and to hear you sing. This is a unique and wonderful place in the world. that People would have gathered here on this corner for years to honor God and to preach His Word and to sing songs that are pleasing to Him. We are blessed people. We have so much. God has been so good and kind to us. The day before yesterday, I think it was Saturday, yes, uh, my son Kyle, my oldest son, was looking forward to watching a playoff game. He had he'd gotten up early in the morning and the two little grand buddies were making a lot of noise and he wanted to quiet them so he could have some time with the Lord. So he put a video on in the basement with the TV. They got about a, they got a big you know, screen, flat panel, like $500 Sony TV thing down there. And it basically puts, the kid, puts it on for the kids and he goes up to read his Bible. And after a while, the oldest son, Kyle, he comes up to dad and he goes, I think you need to come downstairs. He's like, what is it? He goes, Ollie did something to the television. He's like, what did he do? He said he hit it with a bat. It broke. So Ollie has some... Um, <laughs> Ollie's dad bought him a little Louisville slugger, you know, like you give a little kid, and he hit the TV. You think that's fine? I got Pastor Pine laughing on that one. Now that's a rare. We get a, peep, a picture of this over here. Just you see your sense of humor. Sorry, Pastor. I, I, I shouldn't do that. And anyway, so he hits the TV and breaks the television. And Kyle was talking to me today, and he said, "Dad, it's kind of cute to see how people pro- how Christian people process disasters like that. You know, it's like five hundred dollars or insurance with the government." And Kyle says to me on the phone tonight, as I was coming here and talking to him a little bit, he said, "You know, I went upstairs, and I, you know, I, I know God reminded me not to be upset." And he said, um, "I went upstairs and I sat down and I thought, God's been so good to us. He's given us so much stuff. Those little boys are a treasure." I'm like, "Yeah, I like to hear you talk like that." It's a good thing every once in a while for us to sit down and go, God has been good to us. How could the nation of Israel, the nation of Judah, how could they have turned away from God when He was so good to them? And how eager He was to bless them. And how can we turn away from God? When God is so eager to bless us, He so wants our good, and He so wants to bless us. He has a heavenly Father who loves us. How can we walk away from Him? How can we find ourselves so far from God who loves us so much? God has abundantly blessed us. Remember that. But we are prone to wander. Am I right? Top down, we're prone to wander. The book here talks about leaders, talks about kings that wander, that stray, and that lead people into disobedience. Top down, we're prone to wander. Corruption is common among God's people. Don't think that you will escape the downward tug of corruption in your own family. And in this church, we, got, we, we must realize that there's a very live possibility in all of our lives. But when we do wander, we have a faithful God who will chastise us. That's my fourth application. Did you catch it? God has abundantly blessed us. We're prone, to, we're prone to wander top down, but when we do, God is faithful to chastise us. It's kind of sobering, though. You know, you don't want to, you don't want to prevail upon the mercy of God. You don't want to take, uh, you don't want to, I'm, this is a rare moment. I'm at a loss for words. You just won't see that very often. You don't want to presume, there it is, on the mercy of God. You want to take advantage of the mercy of God every time you get a chance. But you don't want to presume on the mercy of God. Think about this. Israel goes into captivity. No. They're annihilated. Judah goes into captivity. Israel's not coming back. Never does. Can't. It, Judah will come back from captivity. 
And that should make us think is annihilation or exile. God will chastise us. Punishment is chastisement because we're His children. And prophets are agents of God's mercy. So if a prophet gets in your face, your tendency is to say, you know, go away, prophet. I don't want to hear you. Your, your breath is bad. And, 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 you, and you irritate me. And, and you upset my stomach. And I, I was going to eat lunch. And don't do that. When the prophet, of, if, if you have a prophet of God in your life, your prophet of God might have a high voice and sound a lot like your mother. You know what I'm saying? You might have a faithful Sunday school teacher that's trying to tell you something and you're just not listening. If you don't, you, you have faithful pastors. And I'm, I'm thrilled about Pastor Michael being here. I'm more thrilled every day because I, I like to imagine him and his heart and know he loves God, his desire to live for God, his desire to raise his family for God, helping us by, by also speaking speaking truth into the lives of the little children in our church and in the teens in our church and overseeing that. You know, you have pastors here who sincerely care about you and want you to prosper and flourish spiritually. That's what gets us up in the morning. We do feel that way. And I know we have godly men in this church. Some are recognized leaders. Some are not necessarily official recognized leaders who have worn Bibles and who care about the things of God and men and women alike. And I'm so thankful for that. Think about this. There are people in your life who are going to talk straight and give you the truth. Listen to those people. Listen to those people, please. So much of the folly and ignorance and foolishness and sin and despair that I see in the lives of people could be just completely washed away if they would just listen to the people that God put into their lives. Just listen. Humble yourself. And be, be quick to ask. I mean, shouldn't it just be calibrating our soul every night to the Lord? God, is there anything that crossed the threshold of my life today that wasn't pleasing to you? Did I say a word that wasn't pleasing to you? Did I have an attitude or a spirit that was wrong? Did I say or do anything? Did I look on something? I should, God, help me. That should be the heart of a Christian, you see. And so when we do, God is faithful to chastise us. Get it? God has abundantly blessed us, one. We're prone to wander top-down. Third, when we do wander, God is faithful to chastise us. He'll bring us punishment in order to correct us. He'll bring us prophets as agents of His mercy. They're prophets in your life. Fourth, there is hope. There is hope, and you always can repent. God, God help on you. You hear in my voice, there is hope. And then you see this, if you get to chapter 25, it's just horrible. You come to the end of Judah, and they're carried off into Babylon captivity, and the very last little paragraph, there's just this little turn of events that allows a little ray of hope, and there's no doubt in literary terms that's there for a purpose for us to realize that God is saying, but this story isn't really quite over yet, and your story isn't over yet. And your story's not over as long as your heart is beating and you can, you can turn to God and repent and, and, and do what God says and obey Him. Your story's not over either. There's a way back to God, and the way back to God is repentance. So God sends rebellious people into exile, sometimes as chastisement. God brings repentant people back from exile. Don't presume upon the Lord's mercy. Israel was lost and never returned from exile, but Judah had a chance to repent. So be wise and be careful and repent fully at the first opportunity and humble yourself before the Word and listen to the prophets of God. And take a look in chapter 22 and verses 8 through 13. I want to show you something here about Josiah here as we have a concluding thing. There's a few more things I should share with you. Don't put your shoes on quite yet. Chapter 22, verses 8 uh, through 13. 
uh, Hilkiah, the high priest. You remember, I'm skipping into the life of Josiah, right? And Josiah's an eight-year-old king initially, right? And he does good things. But at one point, there's such decline in the nation that the Bible is lost. Can you imagine? The book of the law is lost. And then Hilkiah, high priest, comes up, finds it, and then he knows what he ought to do. He takes it to the king, and the response of the king is the same response that you and I ought to have to the Word of God in our lives. It's a beautiful text here. And, uh, and for, from verse 8 there, Then Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan, the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it. And Shaphan the scribe went to the king, and bringing the king word, saying, Your servants have gathered the money that was found in the house, delivered it to the hand of those who do the work to oversee the house of the Lord. And the scribe showed the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And he read it before the king. And it happened when the king heard the words of the book of the law, that he tore his clothes. Understand, here's already an obedient king obeying to the best of his ability. He now discovers that they've consistently violated the law of God, and he, he shows this grief. This, oh, this is a mark of a godly leader. He's grieved. Verse 12, the king commanded Hilkiah, the priest, and Anakim, Ahikim, uh, uh, son of Shaphan, Akbor, son of Milkiah, Shaphan the scribe, and Isaiah, the servant of the king, saying, Go inquire, uh, go inquire of the Lord for me, for the people, and for all Judah, concerning the words of this book that's been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that's aroused against us, because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book. Do according to all that is written concerning this. You understand, we're getting here toward the end of the book, and this story is placed in a literary, for literary purpose. So that people would see, can you just see how this is not just a, a, a passing kind of a thing? This is like, pay attention to this. This is how one is supposed to respond to the Word of God. To tremble at the Word of God, to humble themselves uh, before the Word of God. And there's much more to this that I want. But this is the idea that God looks upon those, according to Isaiah chapter 66 and verse 1 and 2, He looks upon those who tremble at His Word, who humble themselves and who tremble at His Word. He looks upon those. Before we quit tonight, I want to show you something that's always fascinated me, and it might set you on a little journey, a little project. Because if I've always read the Old Testament, there's something I've always noticed as I read the Old Testament. You notice that there are those who do evil, the kings that do evil in the sight of the Lord. And then there are the handful of kings, and, and eight of them, that the kings that do, that do right or do good in the sight of the Lord. And with almost all of them, it also adds another little phrase in the little synopsis of their of their reign, what does it say? But they didn't do what? Over and over again, they didn't take down the high places. Over and over again. Let's look at it tonight. I want to show you this as a little quick survey because I think it will serve to help us to get the heart of what First and Second Kings together are saying. I'm backing up now to First Kings 15, and I think you'll be able to stay with me. I put a little skull and crossbones in my Bible every time I saw he they they, they didn't take down the high places. And here are the places where the skull and crossbones are. Here we have in Asa. You understand these are all the record of all of the good kings of Judah, right? Asa, good king. Of Judah. Here's where I'm going with this, by the way. You, you think about this. I, I, I like to think, I like to kind of do this little transfer. You think, here's a good king who has a heart for God, who's doing right, and he's commended by God, and he does right, good, in the sight of the Lord. That's good, right? You want, the, you want God to say that about that you at the end of your life. You want God to say, this is a good person who did good in the sight of the Lord, and you don't want any conjunction after that. You don't want but, right? 
You don't want but. I've always wondered about that because you have these good kings and then the sons aren't good kings and the grandsons aren't good kings and then there's a good king. And, and, I, and I guess the thing that I've always watched is I scour the Bible for family promises all of the time. And I've always watched this. I've always thought, is there a corollary here between kings that were good kings but incomplete in their obedience and the effect that that might have had on the people that followed them? What would happen to kings who were complete in their obedience? And you can do some research on that because I think you might find that kind of interesting. I'm not drawing any conclusions here on that. It wouldn't be appropriate because I really haven't done. It just always fascinates me to read that. And I wonder, there's a little hypothesis I'd like to run through the Scriptures and I'd like to study. But I want you to notice in of Asa here, the high places weren't removed. Jehoshaphat, 1 Kings 22, 43-46, and the high places were not removed. Look at that. 1 Kings um, chapter 22. I'll read uh, this one. 1 Kings chapter uh, 22 um, and verse uh, 41. Jehoshaphat, the son of Asa, Asa, he was doing what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Nevertheless, the high places were not taken away. Exactly what it says about Asa in 1 Kings 15, 11 through 14. Exactly what it says about Joash in 2 Kings 11, 2. He's called uh, Jehoash in 2 Kings 11 and 2. He's called Joash. Same guy, a.k.a. Same guy. Destroyed Baal temples in chapter 12 of 2 Kings. He destroyed the Baal temples, 2 Kings chapter 12. But notice what happens here. Um, he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, did according to all his father Uzziah had done. However, the high places were not removed. And this was Jotham. I skipped to, uh, that, uh, I'm sorry, Jehoash. And Amaziah, 2 Kings four, uh, 14. Um, 2 Kings 14, 4. However, the high places were not taken away, and the people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. Azariah, chapter 15, verse 3, he did what was right in the sight of the Lord according to what his father Amaziah had done, except that the high places were not removed. The people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. What's that about? They loved God. They knew God. They obeyed God. They sometimes even took down uh, the temple the, the temple to Baal. But there was still not a complete obedience. And in the book that's kind of giving the clues to why they had the decline, there's this thing that's repeated over and over again. Even the good kings didn't take down the high places. In other words, folks, it's possible for us to have a heart for God and to know God and to love God and for God to say, yes, this is my child. This is a, good, this is a person good as I've made them righteous. But yet their obedience is not complete. There's still areas of incomplete obedience. And this is why that has happened. And there's a cause and effect there. Does that make sense? Same with Jotham in 2 Kings 15, as I read. Hezekiah, look at, look at this. Now you get to Hezekiah, and you get to, this is in chapter 18. Let's read from 1, verse 1. Now it came to pass in the third year of Hoshea, the son of Eliah, the king of Israel, Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was, was uh, Abby, the daughter of Zechariah. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father David has done. And what do you expect to hear next? And yet, he didn't remove the high places, right? That's what you expect, because that's what you've heard up to this point. And yet, verse 4 says, or verse 3, uh, verse 4 says, you almost want to kind of cheer when you read it. He removed the high places, and he broke the sacred altars, and he cut down the wooden image, and he broke the pieces of the bronze serpent that Moses had made. I hope I'm not going a bad place when I give you this little illustration here. Just, it's a, it just I want you to just think. Here's, here's just in a way. This is one possible 
uh, application of this truth, one possible application. I, I remember family that um, I had written a little article. This was years ago in another town. I'd written a little article, and, I, and I, in the article I wrote about how having alcohol in your home is like having a pet snake. It's like, you know, a deadly pet that could reach up and could bite you. And I think that's appropriate. That's what the Bible says, you know, that, that, that you know, alcohol, uh, you know, beverage alcohol, that, that it can be like, can bite like a snake, right? You know that. I mean, you've certainly seen that. And um, I didn't have them in mind. I didn't know they drank. And I was discipling them. I was meeting them in their home once a week and taking them, walking through the things of the Lord, just kind of basic stuff. Hey, before we get started, they said, Pastor, can we talk about drinking? Well, sure. They said, you, you think you should totally abstain from alcohol? I said, absolutely, absolutely. Modern beer, wine, alcohol is so potent that you don't want to go and compare that with, with, with Bible wines and beers and assume it's the same. Wise people abstain from alcohol altogether. That's becoming a minority opinion, but... I, if we just want to check with the Lord, and is this pleasing to the Lord? I think this is pleasing to the Lord. Anyway, this guy Tony, he said, well, Pastor, my wife and I, we just sat down after you said that, and if we read, if we read that, and you know how you said it, like having a, having a six-pack in the back of the fridge is like asking for trouble with your kids. And they could take advantage of that, and they could go other places, and we, that was a dangerous thing, and we just decided that we were going to set that Aside. As a matter of fact, there was a couple three-week processes. We were talking with the, with the family, and they were asking me what I thought. And, and you know, they are giving the arguments about drinking and drunkenness and, and some of the arguments that would support, you know, it's okay for a Christian to drink but not get drunk. And, you know, you've heard that all before. And I said, well, you can do what your conscience dictates to you based on your understanding of the Bible. But as your pastor, if you want me to give you counsel, you've got these three little beautiful girls here. And just look at them. they got their Bibles open, and they're so eager to hear from you. And, and from me, when I come over, they're always eager. I would say I would get that out. And he said, well, we'll think about it. And a few weeks later, they got the alcohol out, you know. And they said, we decided. And, you know, I was, a few weeks later, I came back for a discipleship meeting, and they said, you know, it's so nice now that we're not drinking. And I said, tell me about it. And they go, well, you know, before we couldn't, like, take the girls to the park when we wanted to, and we couldn't. And now I was like, well, that's interesting because if you're if you're – you can't take the girls to the park. What's, me, what's that tell me about you? That, that the alcohol, like you're afraid you're going to get picked up for drunk driving or something? What are you saying, you know? And, um, and I think about that. I look, look back over the years, and, and I think about the kinds of decisions that we make. It's possible for people who, track with me on this, it's possible, possible for people who really are Christian people, who really do love the Lord, to do really dumb things. And not... And the, and the repercussions, yes, you're a child of God, but these repercussions that come as a result of incomplete obedience to God are going to come back to bite you someday, or maybe the people that you love. And I would just challenge you to think, I'm not trying to tell you, I'm not trying to dictate things to you. I would just say, leave your heart open to the Holy Spirit of God to tell you what it is that would be for you, what God is speaking to you about tonight, because he's so much better at this than I am by far. So get the idea here, if you think about it, that God is jealous for your affection. Let me just show you one more thing. In 2 Kings chapter 23 and verse 25, in all of this long story about Josiah, we, we chose Josiah as one of the middle names of one, one of our boys there for this very reason. Listen to what it says about him in verse 25 of chapter 23. Now before him, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart. 
and with all his soul and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor afterward did any arise like him. What a wonderful thing that here can be said about Josiah. Josiah was this man who gave his heart to the Lord. If I was going to give a big idea here for you to track with on this, it's this. Follow God with all your heart. Obey God completely. And look back on the chastisement that's been in your life or that's currently in your life. Look back on that and quickly and instantly obey the Lord and instantly humble yourself and get in the habit of doing that. That's kind of a long, big idea, isn't it? Let me shorten it for you. And that's just this. When God shows you why you've strayed far from Him and the way back, admit it, admit the reason you strayed, and take the way back, the way of repentance and obedience to the Lord. I got a couple of books in my library. A number of years ago, this book came to my attention. It was written by a woman. Written by a very precious mother. She's a mother of a rebel boy. Two rebel boys. Oh, she loved these boys. She taught these boys the, the Bible. She poured her heart out to these boys. She did. I mean, she was a devoted, godly. She's with the Lord now, but she was a devoted, godly mother. And she, she spent time with those boys and her, her family. But these two boys made up their mind that they were going to do what they wanted to do. And they got involved in things that broke the mom's heart, broke the dad's heart. And the mom prayed that the dad would confront the, the oldest boy. And she prayed and prayed. Finally, one time she said to him, would you please take a walk with him? And would you please confront him? And would you please ask him to come back, walk with the Lord? And her husband, who was a well-known Christian leader, spoke to thousands in rallies, found it really hard to take a walk with this boy and walk around the lake and just be straight with this boy. The boy went off to school. It was a Christian college, but in this Christian college, he rebelled and got involved in all kinds of misbehavior and sin and drinking, drunkenness and so forth. But finally, by God's mercy, as we often hear, God drew him back to the faith of his childhood, to the faith of his mother and his father. The book the woman wrote is called For Prodigals and Those Who Love Him. And it's by Ruth Graham. And the book the boy wrote is by her son Franklin Graham. It's called A Rebel with a Cause. I want to encourage you tonight. I watched your faces this morning as I was talking about being salt and light. I know you want your kids to live for the Lord. I know you want to live for the Lord. And we have this decline in all of us. And I want to encourage you tonight. There's a father who watches the horizon for every prodigal to return. And he's eager to run to embrace those sons and daughters that are far from God. And if you're far from God in, in any way tonight, I trust that you will run to him.